0: Thousands of Kansans know what it means to be on the receiving end of the blunt forces of domestic violence. It's verbal, emotional, and physical. It may leave no visible signs, or send people to the hospital, or put them in an early grave. Here are some numbers to think about. The Kansas Bureau of Investigation's most recent report on domestic violence statewide says there were 22,500 incidents in 2021. That was 600 fewer than in 2020, but 150 more than in 2019. Overall, only half of reported incidents led to an arrest, and experts in the field say most incidents don't get reported to law enforcement anyway. Two-thirds of victims were women, three-fourths of perpetrators were men, This is a tough issue for the Kansas legislature to wrap its arms around, but Cedric County District Court Judge Phil Journey is introducing a package of bills designed to improve the system's response to domestic violence. Mr. Journey, a former Republican state senator from Wichita, joins the Kansas Reflector today to pour over his ideas. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me on your podcast.
0: Yes, thank you for being here. I think you've spent a lot of time on this issue, and I think you're uh, a good person to talk to in that regard. So, Mr. Journey, you in the district court, it brings you closer to domestic violence than I think many people would be. Can you draw a bit of a picture of what it looks
1: like from the bench? Well, let's see. I have uh, 15 years on the bench, 25 years in practice. I did eight years as the Wichita Municipal Court Public Defender. I dealt with all their prisoners for eight years. Uh, I have a lot of experience. It's not a day that goes by that I don't get something to eat and have to address some facet of domestic violence in one of the cases that I have. Hmm. Currently, I'm in the family law department. I have the equivalent of 100,000 people's divorces. And paternity cases and child support enforcement, and uh, once in five, once every five weeks, I get to uh, do protection from abuse and protection from stalking, restraining orders too. Mm-hmm. So I, I have lots of experience with it.
0: You do? My gosh, I didn't realize it was quite that thorough. The stakes of all this are pretty high. The KBIS report says the in 2021. These incidents of domestic violence led to 900 kidnappings, 170 forcible rapes, 100 strangulations, 3,000 aggravated assaults, and 4,000 incidents of criminal damage to property. Wichita accounts for, Sedgwick County accounts for a large proportion of these, correct?
1: A a disproportionate amount. Uh, Mm -hmm. When I read that study, I was aghast because, frankly, Sedgwick County's number one, not where we really want to be on this chart. And uh, they had more incidents in the next three counties combined with significantly higher population. So the incident rate in Sedgwick County is significantly higher than the state average. What would be a theory as to why that is? I think part of it is the socioeconomic circumstances in Wichita because we're basically, you know, manufacturing uh, low to middle income. Uh, there are, I see people every day that have significant economic stresses. And then, of course, you throw their divorce in on top of it. And usually it's a financial train wreck.
0: Addiction, financial, I mean, oh, uh, you know, you know yeah. substance abuse.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, uh, there, substance abuse is a huge driver of the dislocation we see in our society.
0: All right, Judge Journey, I, I have to hesitate because sometimes I might call you Senator Journey. You can Apologize just you Phil, that.
1: that's fine. Yeah, you a, know,
0: you're not, I don't have my dress on today. Don't think I can do that. Judge <laughs> Journey, you've introduced a series of bills over the past few years, and you'll be seeking passage of some in the 2023 session. Perhaps the best way to approach this is just kind of go one by one through your uh, ideas. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll try to touch upon this first one, and you can kind of explain what the goal is and the objective and how it might work out. You've proposed that all law enforcement agencies in the state mandate training of their officers uh, so that, that when they encounter somebody involved in domestic violence, they provide that person with information that might be helpful to them, uh, information about getting a uh, protection from abuse or social services or financial assistance. And you, the officers there would complete what's perhaps called a lethality assessment uh, to help also guide them and the court system in terms of making referrals for these individuals. That sound right? Yes. yes. Okay. That's
1: that's an accurate so, rendition of that. Okay. One. So tell us about how that would would attack this issue. Okay. Well, first let me say that it's not. This is not a unique idea. You know, there's no plagiarism in, in legislation, and so there's this this type of provision and similar provisions are enacted in dozens of states across the country. So it's something that's proven to work. Often, victims of domestic violence, they don't have any experience. They've never been in the court system except maybe for a speeding ticket. They have no idea what resources might be available to them, and often they feel trapped, and unnecessarily so. And so essentially, that one just requires law enforcement to provide them with the information of where to go get help. And it's not like extra super burdensome training mm-hmm. it's just basically somebody needs to do the legwork make the list of the safe houses how you file a pfa and we're trying to make that much easier now in the court system too because now it can all be pretty much internet based and you don't have to like drive 40 miles to the courthouse to do the paperwork like you used to mm-hmm. you still have to go to the hearings though <laughs> well to get a per- right. protection protection and- from abuse order that you perhaps have to provide
0: some sort of cause, some sort of justification for why you want to impose this restriction on somebody else. But
1: it, it can be done remotely, and we do it remotely now in Sedgwick County. When it's my turn to do PFAs and PFSs, I usually run about 100 cases a week. Hmm. So about 20 a day. So some of these officers could, could, yeah, some
0: of these, some of these information you're talking about here could be provided by officers, but this would be more of a systematic approach.
1: Yes. Yes. To make sure it gets done. Hmm. I mean, if you do it, if you do it haphazard, it's not going to get done and somebody's not going to get the information and God forbid, they're going to have something horrible happen. I interrupted you and you were going to say. Okay. So the lethality assessment is important too. It's important for the victim. It's a very short questionnaire. It's like 10 questions. They have different ones in Spanish, and they have different ones for gay couples, and they have different ones for hetero couples. And so um, basically, the victims do not know how much danger they're in. And this lethality assessment has been adopted and used in many states, and it has been proven in studies to show that it does provide a reliable indicator of the level of danger that could be present in that relationship. It also provide, would provide important information for the judge. It's important to close the information circle. You know, if you're like on our first appearances in Sedgwick County, you've got 55, 75, 100 people in your courtroom that day for new cases that are coming into the system, uh, you know, you need, you need to have a quick reference that says, oh, maybe I should put this guy on GPS. You know, because he won't leave her alone. Maybe I should put this guy on pretrial services. I think, you know, there's an issue. He's got a prior drug conviction. And, you know, there's allegations. And, uh, you know, maybe he just needs to pee for me just to be sure. That, uh, you know, he's doing what he's supposed to while he's waiting on his case to be resolved. I think that would just be a
0: great help from you sitting on the bench looking at this blur of cases in front of you. If there was some sort of scoring methodology that would tip you, tip you off as to maybe a larger issue.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the tragedies that have just happened here in Topeka in the last seven days. Say so much about what this legislation could do. So, you've proposed this before. Has it gotten much traction? Uh, Some of them I've started as early as 18. And then, you know, as, as I would go to seminars as a judge and I'd like steal somebody's idea from their mm-hmm. state and mm-hmm. then I'd go, that's a great idea. And then I'd find their bill and find their legislation or their law. And then I'd, you know, so take for some it of these, to the advisors and say, let's see if we can adapt this.
0: You've been after it for a few years on some of these.
1: Uh, well, you know, even back in 2003 and 2008 when I was in the legislature, I still worked on this issue along with many others. Mm hmm. All right. So let's
0: pivot to the second uh, piece of legislation you're interested in. You propose um, that law enforcement officers at a scene of an alleged domestic violence would try to use some training to determine the, quote unquote, primary aggressor. Well, on that, on that domestic violence call,
1: what's the benefit of this? Okay, currently, Kansas statute is different from many other states that have similar language and similar provisions in their statute. And what this is intended to do is give law enforcement information and guidance in how to use that information so that they can determine who's the primary aggressor. Put yourself in the law enforcement officer's shoes for a moment. You're driving around. You get a call from dispatch. You go to the house. It's domestic violence. It's always a horrible, tense situation. Mm -hmm. Everybody has injuries. Now, some injuries are aggressive in nature, and some injuries are defensive in nature, in other words, someone trying to defend himself would, you know, like scratch it or something like that, mm-hmm. where someone that's being aggressive would be more violent, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And so also, they, they it's usually when the law officers call to the scene, uh, it's not the first time they've had an incident. And sometimes the history of the couple or the parties involved in the incident can provide insight as to who's the primary aggressor. And often... Uh, What happens is, in Kansas, is that, you know, the officers show up. Everybody's got injuries. He says she scratched me, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, she says he hit me, whatever. And so everybody gets arrested for disorderly conduct. And so what the victim learns when they're simply trying to defend themselves and protect their kids, uh, that if I call the police, I'm going to jail. So guess what happens the next time an incident comes? The police don't get called. And my experience has been that they don't generally, these situations don't calm down. It may undulate, and but it, all, it seems to always get worse
0: mm-hmm. until
1: somebody gets some help.
0: Yeah, I would think that uh, this, this notion of a primary aggressor is interesting because I imagine uh, people who are domestic violence abusers might uh, strategize that before the cops got there, they might inflict upon themselves defensive looking wounds
1: or uh, that is uh, you know? that is, well they, they could inflict a wound on themselves, and i 've certainly mm-hmm. had cases like that. I bet it 's happened where yeah. oh, oh absolutely, absolutely, or they 'll be the first one to call nine one one or mm. they 'll be the aggressor will be the first one to meet him at the at the curb and then wow. set the, and then set to the stage for the rest of the police interaction
0: mm-hmm. interesting all right, uh, the third one is something called staggered sentencing. And I think this is uh, borrowed from an approach regarding driving under the influence convictions, like third and fourth convictions. Maybe you would set up a system where the person gets 90 days in jail. However, you take those in 30-day segments, and you would try to get people uh, some assistance, some counseling, some help, really intensive in that 30 days, and then evaluate them later And if you have to apply the next 30 days and the final 30 days of that penalty if they're not improving. Is
1: that that sort of track? Uh, Okay, okay. So that that basically is the regimen. Okay, so the judge would be given the option of using the standard sentencing provisions or to go with this route. Okay. All right, so we have these two kinds of felonies. They're kind of wobblers because they're not punishable by more than a year in jail. And they're not punishable by prison time. They have to do their time in the county jail. Mm -hmm. And so that puts a financial burden on the counties, too. All right. And so for a third offense, misdemeanor battery, it elevates to a felony. The maximum penalty is 12 months, a $2,500 fine. The minimum is, uh, I think, a $200 fine and then a $200 assessment for uh, services, and then uh, a mandatory minimum of 90 days. Generally, those sentences are imposed because we don't have room at the jails anywhere. They get two days of real jail, and then they do 88 days of house arrest. Hmm. So essentially, the biggest problem that we have, and it's a similar sentencing system on DUI also, 90 days, 2 and 88, and then a 12-month maximum. And so the problem we have, particularly with individuals who are of lower economic status and don't have a lot of resources, that they have to pay for some pretty expensive counseling. And so because it's not provided for them, often that is a problem. They find excuses. They don't get it done for whatever reason. And then, you know, you have to extend <laughs> their probation another year because they have to get through it or you have to PVM, one or the other. And so what this does is it puts a carrot in front of the offender rather than just getting a stick ready for them. And so the carrot is that if they they only have to do 30 days initially, but they have the understanding that they have to get certain landmarks met during their probation, and if they meet those landmarks and are in, you know, treatment and don't reoffend and don't harass the person and, you know, don't violate their probation, the judge has the option of simply staying that next 30-day period. And then if they're off track and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, the judge can impose that 30 days. And then, you know, they go on with the probation. Mm -hmm. And so at the end, if they have everything done, if they've got it all paid off, If they've got all their treatment done, if they're behaving as they should and reporting as they should and doing what they're supposed to on probation, the judge can stay that last 30 day sentence. And so it puts a carrot and a motivator to stay out of house arrest and spend that thousand dollars on house arrest that they're going to spend and rather spend that thousand dollars on. Guess what? Treatment. Hmm. And they get that BIP, especially in, uh, domestic violence batterer's intervention programs do much to reform the actual offender's behavior and to give the offender a, an understanding of what the consequences are of what they've done because most of the time they don't understand it either
0: they don't necessarily understand why they're being abusive
1: they, and, and they don't understand what happens to everybody around them when they are mm-hmm. which is which the consequences are severe and far-reaching
0: yeah let's just divert ourselves briefly the consequences for kids, we'll say.
1: Okay, so I just finished a seminar on uh, for judges on what are called ACEs, and it's adverse child experiences. And domestic violence is a huge driver of these adverse child experiences. And what happens, whether they're adolescents or preteen or toddlers or whatever, is that they essentially, it changes the way their brain develops. It changes the way when they experience the violence, when they see it, when they see what someone they love get hurt, they end up having the fight or flight response that everybody has genetically in them and the cortisol floods through their brain and if they have repeated exposure to cortisol and the other fight or flight hormones, Uh, it changes the way their brain develops. And they learn from experience on how to treat others when they become adults. And so it basically increases the likelihood of the cycle of violence by seeing the violence.
0: Okay, very good. The fourth piece of legislation you're aiming for is something that would increase the penalty the sanction for violating restraining orders that are issued to try to protect people from further abuse i think this may apply to second and third offenses
1: that's correct
0: so explain what the bill would do so
1: currently uh it would increase the severity severity level a second offense is a misdemeanor under current statute it would raise it to a, a low level felony like a severity level seven or eight Uh, You know the legislature can play with those numbers, so you know I'm not I'm not really locked in on any of that. But it increases the penalty for a third one from a level seven to a level four, which is pretty much presumptive prison. Because by the time they violate that order intentionally three times, I think they should be out. They get you know three strikes and you're out. I have seen people that have been harassed for decades and see what it does to them. And it changes the way they react mm-hmm. in their lives oh. to others.
0: Well, it's hard for me to imagine, actually, but um, I can imagine. I, I, I feel that. So... Uh, you have these pieces of legislation. Are you optimistic that you can get some traction for this stuff I, in 2023? You know,
1: I've, 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 you know, in five years, I got 30 bills passed when I was in the Senate. and I've gotten legislation passed after I left the Senate, you know, particularly on driver's licenses and help people getting their privileges restored and things like that, and had help from both Republicans and Democrats to get those things done. Uh, I, I think that uh, once I have the opportunity to make the case, that I'll be able to close the deal mm-hmm. that these are all good bills they're not expensive they're not going to spend a ton of money uh not like the noise. you're I'm not reinventing about. the
0: wheel there's there, other states have done this it's one of the advantages of of looking at what other states have done you can see kind of what works and maybe what didn't work so well right i think it's great to draw from the experience of your neighbors
1: i i think i think you know that we have you know there's no reason to reinvent the wheel when somebody already has a round one
0: Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I want to uh, circle back to something you said sure. about better intervention program. This is a six month program that aims to kind of reshape a person's mental framework so they might avoid repeating such damaging behavior. So that's out there. It's costly. It's more time consuming, a greater commitment, but maybe a better reward. Some jurisdictions lean more to a short term anger management approach. It could be a one day class. Uh, yeah, and, so, and part of it is about cost, I know that, and availability of counselors and a lot of other things. So we, could you talk a little bit about that gap there between some short-term uh, idea and something more perhaps lasting?
1: Okay, well, the, the legal source for all of this, it basically comes from Kansas' home rule constitutional provision. A city will pass a charter ordinance, and then they can take exception from state law and enforce their municipal ordinances at different, in different ways than state law requires. The state has the option of saying, I, we're going to occupy this area and you're going to do what we say. <laughs> but they have not done so on this topic yet.
0: So what you're getting at is in Sedgwick County, there's more of a tendency to uh, push the short-term anger management It is to insist upon better intervention programs.
1: The number of cases show you that the volume through Wichita Municipal Court is huge. And that in the, the, the more complicated monitoring that has to occur on a long-term counseling program is a significant burden on them. So that could be part of the
0: problem in Wichita mm-hmm. is that people are cycling through this ineffective short-term program and for a lot of different reasons, money and otherwise, they're not getting this broader help. Uh, that, that could be part
1: of the issue of
0: a- why there's such a concentration down there.
1: A- anecdotally, I think that what you've said is absolutely true. I, I don't have any statistics to like, do a survey or, mm-hmm. or to look at a large population to see if there's a correlation. But uh, anecdotally, I think you're hitting the nail on the head.
0: I wondered if you could touch upon another idea that's floated out there in the ether is like perhaps uh, therapeutic courts for families.
1: Well, oh, and, you know, and we you... talked about that and I appreciate that. Uh, that's what I'm exploring right now. I've got a working group together of uh, family counselors and attorneys and probably get a couple of retired judges in on it. And essentially it's another thing we're going to steal from Minnesota,
0: Minnesota.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, they have a, uh, essentially a triage from the impression I got I just went to a seminar today on that that uh, when the case comes in they're basically triaged and when they're found to be of concern then they go to a little more analysis and then if they're like in a high conflict situation they have all these services ready and they just wrap that whole family around them and start trying to solve the problems at the very beginning not at the end you know it could take it could take six months 18 months to bring a divorce to trial, depending on the lawyers and the complexity of the case. And by then, the damage is done and you're just picking up the pieces, and been repeated and repeated and repeated, and then, and then you know the cycle continues. For and it the becomes so
0: broader family. Yes, so the kids are growing up. I mean, you and could you could say they've the already
1: been changed. The divorce takes us
0: some time, but I would imagine some criminal prosecutions for battery or what have you that is related to a domestic violence case could stretch on for a couple of years. I mean, I, uh, the there, way cases get no punted around. The,
1: there's no doubt that the consequences are lifelong. Hmm. for the the individuals that are victims.
0: Well, I think the last thing I was—if you could talk uh, about—just get back to the point of, for some legislators, the Kansas legislature, as you know, is a citizen legislature. It's a part-time legislature. And and people are coming here from all kinds of different places and perspectives— and not everybody understands what it's like to be in a large urban center where there is a, a real mass of domestic violence issues. So how do you get legislators who aren't in tune with this, perhaps, to listen to what you have to say?
1: Well, I think the first thing you have to do is educate them. And you do that by a number of different ways. You know, you could try writing them or, you know, having conversations and, and essentially to uh, try to educate them so that they understand first that there's a problem then you help define the problem and then you try to define the solution and then you try to measure the outcomes of the solution mm-hmm. and so all of those things are really complicated especially when you start messing with people's lives and thousands of people and thousands of court cases and courts all over the state of kansas so i expect that there will certainly be a learning curve there always is there's also going to be a need for a training curve i think that uh You know, if we look at, for example, what's going on in New York, you know, they had a great they had what they thought was a great red flag law, but they didn't train anybody Hmm. on how to apply it. And then, you know, people are falling through the system, and they're not getting red flagged. So, you know, it's it's about more than simply enacting the legislation. It's following up on it, too. And making sure that the pieces are put in place so that the thing operates like it should, and there 's a steep learning curve you know the I remember the first time I came back to the legislature all right because i was I was appointed in o three I had to run in o four I got elected I came back in o five and one of the freshmen there. It was his first year, and I remember at the end of the session, he told me, you know, Phil, every piece of paper everybody gave me, I measured it every day. And at the end of 90 days, it was over 90 feet.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> Now, now at least it's electronic. And but so you're there's, right.
1: there's always there's always a competition for the legislator's yeah. attention.
0: Yes, the introduction to being a legislator is like taking information in a fire hose. Yeah, For exactly. certain. Yeah, kind of like so. what my traffic
1: docket was like in Wichita. <laughs> All
0: right, I think we're going to leave it there. I want to thank our guest, Phil Journey, a Cedric County judge and a former Republican state senator. And uh, I want to thank you for your effort, and, and good
1: luck with these bills. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity to bring this to your readers. Thank you.